Hello, this is Jim Walsh, and welcome to my podcast called On Eagle's Wings. When we think about Jesus Christ, our mind normally goes to thinking about him in a position of authority. The word Christ means the anointed one, and that had reference to two different offices under the Old Covenant. One was the high priest, and the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus fulfilling that role to a great extent, and we will deal with that in another podcast. But the other individual who was anointed was the king. And so in thinking about Jesus as the Christ, we should be thinking about his kingdom. So we have a question today. What is the nature of Christ's kingdom? We want to concern ourselves today with thinking about Christ's kingdom and looking at it the way God wants us to look at it. Why should we concern ourselves with Christ's kingdom and the nature, the design of its kingdom? Well, because many people misunderstand. They misunderstand the kingdom. They misunderstand the importance of the kingdom. Maybe some even misunderstand why the kingdom exists. And because of this misunderstanding, there are many in the religious world who practice things that God did not authorize and apply them to the kingdom, either in principle or in practice. So what do you think is the nature or design of the kingdom? Well, before you answer that, let's look at what the scriptures reveal. When Jesus was betrayed and he was delivered by the Jewish leaders of his day to the Roman official, the Roman governor Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus a straightforward question. The scriptures reveal that one of the accusations was that Jesus proclaimed himself as a king. So Pilate asked, in thinking about the kingdom, art thou a king? Here is Jesus' response in John 18, verse 36, and I'm reading from the King James Version. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Two things we note. First, Jesus affirmed he is king, but his kingdom is not an earthly one. It is not of this world. It does not pertain to this world. It is not made by the material things of this world. It doesn't have earthly characteristics. The kingdom, therefore, of God has characteristics that glorify him and not things that are of the world. Later in the New Testament, Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he wrote to those who were already members of the body of Christ, members of the church of Christ, those who had been translated out of the world. And where were they put? Well, let's notice what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He said, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of 
his dear son. This reveals to us that those who are in the body of Christ, those who are in the church, are also in the kingdom of God. We live in the world. We live among those who are in the kingdom of darkness. But now we have been taken out of that and placed into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. Jesus is the head of the church, and he is also king of the kingdom. Seeing these things, we need to realize then that the kingdom of God is spiritual. It is not physical. It is not material in design or nature and should not be looked upon as such. That is how individuals can live physically in the world but spiritually be part of the kingdom. We can be surrounded by sin and we can still be pure because we are in Jesus Christ who knew no sin. Now, in thinking about this, there are problems for people today. One is that people think about the kingdom in a physical or material sense, and so many are waiting for the kingdom to come. Some teach that Jesus will actually return to the earth, and he will physically sit upon David's throne, which they say will be established at some future date in Jerusalem. However, there is no scripture to point to this in order to show that it is true. In fact, Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 spoke about Jesus as being the rightful heir of David and that Jesus being resurrected is now presently on David's throne. But he wasn't talking about Jerusalem. He was talking about the heavenly throne. Jesus reigns now on the right hand. He is seated now. The place of his seating is not in Jerusalem. The place of his seating where he reigns now is on the right hand of the Father above. Another problem is that people want to make the kingdom solve all the physical problems of the world, and they don't realize that since the kingdom is spiritual, its work also is spiritual. We're to be about our Father's business teaching the gospel to the lost, seeking to add them to the body of Christ. This can only be done when we preach the gospel, when we show them that without Jesus Christ, they can't be saved, that one needs to have their sins remitted by the blood of Jesus Christ in order to gain access to the kingdom. Therefore, one who does not have Christ as their Savior can't be saved. Without being saved, you can't be in Christ. And therefore, you're left outside of his kingdom. And this presents two problems. The first is that those who are outside have no hope of eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul was inspired to write, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made with hands. So those who were Gentiles were separated from the Jews. And then he went on to say in verse 12 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You were separated from that hope, now you are brought in contact with it. The other problem that it causes is that when we're left out, there's no other way in. 
It's not like one door closed and now there's another open somewhere else. When Jesus closes the door, there's no other way in. How do we know that? From the parable of the wise and foolish virgins that is found in Matthew chapter 25. In verse 1, Jesus said, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. They were, that were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Well, this is through verse 4. I'm not going to read all the verses. But it goes on to talk about the fact that when the bridegroom came, he called. He came late, he came at midnight, and when he called, those who had oil in their lamps could then light the lamps, go meet the bridegroom, and go with him. Those who didn't have any oil now had to spend time finding a way to get oil. And because of that, they did not get to go with the bridegroom. So here's what happened when they finally were able to get oil and come. It says in verse 10, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Verse 11, afterward came also the other one, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Verse 12, but he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Three times in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about those being left outside. In the first part is the parable of the, the unwise virgins, dealing with the unwise virgins. They were shut out. Then he goes on to talk about the parable of the talents, and the one who did not use his talents was cast out. And then in verses 31 through 46, he talks about the final judgment. In thinking about those who would be on the left side, who would be as the goats separated from the sheep, and they also would be cast out. You see, if you're not in the kingdom, you're left out, and there is no other way in. Therefore, being in Christ, being saved is necessary for one to be in the kingdom, to have fellowship with our Heavenly Father through His Son, and have every guarantee of life eternal. But a second question we have in dealing with Christ's kingdom is this. Who has authority in the kingdom? Why is this necessary for us to consider? Well, because there are a lot of people who think that I can make any changes I want and Jesus is going to be happy. I can change the will of the king and he'll be fine with that. And so people confer authority on councils and synods and conferences and other such groups to make spiritual decisions binding on all people. But is that what the scriptures teach? And the answer is no. Even though Jesus is in heaven, we consider the power of God. The power of God is not relegated to place. God is not God in heaven only. Jesus is not king in heaven only. He's king everywhere. And so when Jesus departed this world, Matthew gives us the commission that he gave unto his apostles. Note what it says in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. He said, all power, or some versions would say all authority, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Jesus claimed power from heaven over heaven and earth. 
God had already commanded men to hear his son in Matthew 17, verse 5. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. When Jesus left, he didn't leave his power and authority behind. He took it with him. But in taking it with him, it is not only useful where he goes, it's useful everywhere. If he is Lord and he is sovereign, he is over all. Paul taught that Christ had such authority and continues to have such authority. Ephesians 1, verses 21 through 23. In speaking of Jesus, he said, He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath presently put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth on all. Jesus presently is over all things. This is established by the Father, and it is conferred on him when the Father invited him to sit at his right hand on the throne. Jesus himself promised unto his disciples that he would delegate his authority and that they would be assisted by the Holy Spirit in using it. John chapter 16, first verse 7 and then verse 13. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will allow you things to come. Jesus promised that upon his departure, the Spirit of truth would come to guide the disciples. The Spirit of truth is spoken of as the Comforter. It is the Spirit, God's Spirit, that came to reveal fully his word unto them and give them the power to do miracles so that those miracles would be a testimony of proof that they were teaching the truth that came from God. What the Spirit revealed to them would be what the Spirit had been instructed. Just as the Son was instructed of the Father, so too the Spirit instructed to reveal the Father's will. The disciples taught that this revelation was sufficient to guide them into a perfect relationship with God, having all truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Some versions say that the man of God may be complete. Paul as guided by the Spirit, affirmed that all truth had been revealed as designed by God. That revealed truth makes us perfect. As we read God's Word, as we obey God's Word, we then are complete to do the tasks that God has assigned for us, teaching the gospel to the lost, edifying fellow saints, building up the body of Christ, making provision for those in the household of God who are in need. All that we need to do to satisfy God under the kingship of his son, Jesus Christ, is revealed in the New Testament. No changes need to be made. Was it possible that Jesus didn't think far enough ahead? Is it such that God cannot think of things that men today now think of? Or is it simply possible that God, knowing all things, made provision for all things, whether in the first century or the 21st century, and in so doing, provided his word that does not need change, 
does not need man's counsel or wisdom to dictate unto God or the King Jesus what should be done in deference to what God has already revealed. No, friends, Jesus has all authority. He delegated that authority to his disciples who were guided by the Holy Spirit. They did not do what they wanted to do. They did what they were guided to do. We have any number of accounts that we can make reference to in thinking about the fact that the apostles, even if they thought something was a good idea, were not allowed to do it. Paul, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, talks about the fact that he wanted to go to one place and then he wanted to go to another place, but the Spirit prohibited him from doing that. So these were men guided by the Spirit. They taught God's Word, and they taught that that Word is still sufficient for all today. No, friends, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not physical, it is spiritual. It is ruled by him, and we are guided by it and into it through his word. He is still our Lord, and Jesus Christ is still our king. Once again, this is Jim Walsh. Thank you very much for listening to On Eagle's Wings. I hope you have a wonderful day.